For the next seven weeks, we're going to be looking at the seven churches of Revelation. Uh, every, every one of those churches has, has their own story. There's criticism and there's con- commendation. There are some things that God likes and some things that God doesn't like. Uh, one thing I failed to mention this in the earlier service, I think because I was halfway asleep, was, uh, you know, I didn't talk about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And let me just say this real quick, because there are so many of those churches that have this doctrine, we will be touching on it, but I didn't want to do it today because this sermon's about five hours long as it is. <laughs> but if you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation no S on it, just Revelation, not Revelations. Uh, book of Revelation, chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. This is a, 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 a vision that God had given John when he's in the Isle of Patmos. And then the Lord is, is speaking through John to us and speaking to those seven churches. But here's what he says To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Thank you this morning, Father, that uh, you you have been a lead and guide to us through this day. And Father, we thank you that you have sustained us through this past evening's night. And Lord, that uh, before us is a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire to lead us each day of our lives. And Father, you are that you are that pillar. Your your word, your word is that pillar to us. It is steadfast in our hearts. It'll not be moved. It is your truth. We thank you for it. Lord, bless this message. May we, as your church, respond to it in a way that honors you. In Christ's name, amen. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20, we find these words. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So there should be no doubt in any of our minds as to the identity of the seven lampstands. 
And they are, in fact, the seven churches. And we're going to be looking at them over the next several weeks. And they're found in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, chapters 2 and 3. They include Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Laodicea, uh, Philadelphia, and then Laodicea. Those, those seven. And uh, if you want a good way to remember them, if you can remember of ESP, extrasensory perception, ESP, and the people that bake use a teaspoon, TSP, ESP, TSP, and L. ESP, TSP, L, those are the seven churches. You can do that with a lot of things in the Bible, by the way. But anyway, ESP, TSP, L, the seven churches of Revelation. So we know what the seven lampstands are. But what are the seven stars, or who are the seven stars? That is another matter. There are some people that say that these seven stars are literal angels, because he talks to them, to the angel in the church of whatever. He speaks of these angels. The Greek word is angelos, angel, but it also has the meaning of messenger. The word angelos could be angel, or it could be to the messenger. So who would be the messenger of the church? They'd be the pastor, elder, teacher of that church. So I, 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 I think that it would make sense for us, even though there certainly is a possibility they could be literal angels who, who oversee or look over, guide those churches. But I, I think for me, and there, I'm not dogmatic on this, I'm just saying for me, I think that he's writing to the pastors of those churches because the, the pastor has a responsibility of, of relaying God's word as a messenger to the people of the church. You normally don't have an angel showing up and, and speaking, but you do pastors. Anyway, that's just background information. We need to come to our text, however. And, and here we're able to gather some information about the church at Ephesus. So in this first of seven churches, we're going to look at five, five separate points concerning the church at Ephesus, and I think that you should have a sheet in front of you that kind of gives you a little outline of this. You can fill this in as we go along, but let's look at point number one. You'll find point number one, uh, you find that in verse two. The Lord tells the church at Ephesus, he says, I know your deeds. Now, Ephesus was not some do-nothing church. These people were active. Now, I noticed something when I came to the church. I saw so much activity in this church. You guys are doing a lot of things. That's wonderful that you do these things. The church at Ephesus was super, super, super busy. And they had, they had done some terrific things. And the Lord addresses their deeds in verses, in verses 2 and 3. He talks about their, their, their toil and their perseverance. And that they cannot tolerate evil men. They put to the test those who call themselves apostles. That there might have been somebody in the church who was, who was preaching false doctrine. So the church, knowing that they're teaching false doctrine, what should the church do? Stop it. You don't let somebody teach who's not teaching God's word. If they're making stuff up that's not found in the word of God, why are they teaching? You know, in the words of that, of that great evangelist, Barney Fife, <laughs> nip it in the bud. 
put an end to it. If somebody's teaching something that is not true to the word of God, that needs to be stopped. And in spite of their difficult times, the Lord says, in spite of all the, in spite of the persecution and the opposition that you're having from, from, from outside the church, he says, you have not grown weary. Now, that's good. That's, that's all good stuff. And, and I'm trusting that, that that is true for all of you. That's, that's good stuff. I, I think that you people would stay firm in the word of God, that you would not tolerate people that are teaching things that are not biblical. And I think that's wonderful. However, even though the church had everything working in its favor, even though it was a church that any of us would be glad to be a member of, even though in this church at Ephesus, they had such people, members, these are the members, Paul, Timothy, and the Apostle John. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you feel comfortable spiritually being in a church that had Paul, Timothy, and John in it? Wouldn't you say, man, listen, I belong to the best church in the world. We got the best leadership we got people who are hearing directly from God. Everything is going great. Nothing is going wrong. It's perfect. It's perfect. Paul, Timothy, and John, when you line up for Bible study, you're getting the best of the best. And even in spite of this powerful leadership, there was something about the church that displeased God so much that it led to the Lord bringing a charge of condemnation against it. And this word of condemnation leads us to point number two. You find it in verse four. The Lord says, I have this against you. How could the Lord have anything against Paul, Timothy, and John? And the people that they certainly had discipled and mentored along the way. How could the Lord have anything against them? This criticism, this rebuke could, could be true for most of the church today. As there was a problem with that church, do you think that we should be unscathed in God's looking at us? Even in spite of the Ephesian church as well as today's church's uh, numerous deeds and ministry, there was one most glaring problem. And yes, even in spite of the, the, of the church at Ephesus having, and our church today having sound biblical beliefs, it seems as though we have all been led to err in one particular thing. Do you know what was wrong with the Ephesian church? The same thing that's wrong with your church. There are people in it. Every one of us. Name, name, name pick a person here that's perfect. Oh, I'm not going to hear anybody saying name because none of us are. Whenever you have human government in a church setting, whenever you have human anything, you're looking at finite, air-ridden people. And we make mistakes, and we sin, and we think faulty thoughts. And we take those faulty thoughts and we think that they're good ideas and plans and we put these plans and programs and we implement them in a church. And guess what? Sometimes they don't work. God's plan will work. 
But our plan is not always God's plan, and God's plan is not always our plan. Sometimes we think, God forbid, sometimes we think our ways are better than God's ways. We are a fallen people. Even though we're saved by grace, folks, as long as we're wearing this, this human skin, don't look good for us, does it? There's a bit of Ephesus in all of us. All are under a similar judgment. And the problem, here's the problem. You find it in verse 4. The Lord says, but I have this against you. Are you ready for the problem? You have left your first love. In spite of all the great personalities of the church, in spite of all the great things that were taking place in the church, the problem with the church at Ephesus was they lost their fervent affection for Jesus. Other things got in their way. We need to take a look at John chapter 14. Now, I think you might find it there. In John chapter 14, look at verses 21 and 23 with me. Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Three times you find the word love in there. Okay? Must be very important to Jesus, isn't it? Look at verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and will come to him and make our abode with him. Five times you find the word love in two verses. Five times in two verses. Now notice what he says in verse 21 again. The one, the one who keeps my commandments loves me. He says, the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. Verse 23, if you love me, keep my word. But I want you to pay close attention to verse 24 also. He says, he who does not love me, he who does not love me, does not keep my word. Are you beginning to see a particular idea or pattern or theme from these passages? But let's, let's go further with this thought. I, I want you to, to look at Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew chapter 22, and uh, verses 37 and 38. Do you remember the, the young religious ruler walks up to Jesus and says, Jesus, what, what, is, the, what is the greatest commandment of all? What's, what's number one? What does Jesus say? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Correct? That's what's in there. No matter what you do in the church, I don't care if it is discipleship, evangelism, worship, Whatever, if, if Jesus Christ is not supreme and priority for you, all of that goes to the wayside. There has got to be a foundation of why we do these things. Why, why do we do any ministry? Is it because we want to... 
be recognized as the best church on the block? Is it because we want to be recognized that we have the best committee of people working? If the reason you do ministry, if the reason you do evangelism, if the reason why you teach Sunday school, if the reason is because you want to blow your own horn, you, you missed it. The reason we do these things is because there should be a fervent love for Christ. Not because you're doing this so that you can put a notch on your spiritual gun and say, look what I did. But it's because you have this love for Christ. That's why we do these things. Anything is predicated upon that. If you preclude the idea that that Jesus is supreme, then everything else we do crumbles. This all points to the fact that the requirement for the church at Ephesus, as well as our church here, is that Jesus Christ is to have the supremacy in all things. There is uh, one, one particular uh, theologian in his systematic theology was talking about what, what he called natural theology. And in this natural theology, he was mentioning the fact that, that the, it says, that number one, that Jesus is not supreme. Number two, Jesus is not sufficient. Well, if Jesus is not supreme and Jesus is not sufficient, the natural conclusion is this. Jesus isn't necessary. But, you know, you say, well, I don't believe that. But, you know, there are a lot of us who act as though we do. Because sometimes we do things and Jesus is the furthest thing that we concentrate on when we do something. We think that we're doing it for the church. We're doing it for the community. We're doing, listen, our doing, our doing is fine. But our motivation ought not be anything other than Christ. Paul says, it is Christ in you who's the hope of glory. It it is not the community that's the hope of glory. It is not Hazelwood Baptist Church that's the hope of glory. It is not you that's the hope of glory. It is Christ in you who's the hope of glory. That's where the emphasis needs to be in the church. Whatever we do. Listen, there's, there's a lot of things being planned for this church. A lot of things being planned for this church, but primarily, we need to ensure that Christ stays supreme in all of it. You have left your fervent love for Christ if He's not in your private worship and if He's not in your corporate worship. I'm trusting, folks, listen, I'm going to tell you this. I'm trusting that when you get up in the morning, I'm not saying you've got to spend an hour. You know, it'd be great if, I can get, if we can get Baptists to do 10 minutes. It'd be great if you get up in the morning and you spent the first 15 or 20 minutes. That sounds like nothing, does it? In, in prayer and reading your scripture and reading some devotional book so that you begin your day, you begin your day realizing that the person who sustains you through the night needs to be worshipped by you that morning. How, how, could, how could you begin your day and the supreme spiritual commander of your life is a back burner thought. We can't do that. And we certainly can't do that if we're coming to church and, and, and our, our thinking is, well, it's just, I've got to go to church because it's Sunday. We're coming to church because we're here to worship the Lord, aren't we? 
the Lord when he gives Moses these two tablets. What's the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Isn't that right? I don't care if it's ministry, if it's doctrine, if it's discipleship, if it's evangelism, if it's missions, if it's music, if it's preaching, if that becomes more important than Jesus, we've created something that displeases the Lord. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is Christ in this church the hope of glory. It is Christ in our worship, the hope of glory. It is Christ in our music, the hope of glory. It is Christ in our preaching, the hope of glory. It is Christ in evangelism, the hope of glory. It is Christ in discipleship, the hope of glory. Folks, listen, when we, when we eliminate that common denominator of Jesus Christ, then everything else falls. Point number three, verse five. Remember from where you have fallen. In essence, Jesus is wanting the church to get back to their core beliefs. You know, sometimes we just zip through and we forget what got us here. We, we live in a culture that is just, you know, there's this culture today, and I, next week there'll be a new one. And what we try to do sometimes, rather than engage the culture we live in, we want to embrace the culture we live in. That's a mistake. Because every time you embrace the culture, Jesus looks like a different person. We need to engage it. We need to engage it. You know, there are people out there that, that are part of this culture, and we need to engage them because they live in a culture that is Christless. You, you are the salt and you are the light that Jesus Christ has put in the year 2021. He's put you on this earth. He's put you in this church to be salt and light. You are to preserve what is good and you are to expose what is bad. That's the church. Do you think the Ephesian church was having opposition and oppression and persecution because they were just kind of meeting? They were standing against a culture that was Christless. And they took a stand. Folks, you are the disciples that God has chosen for the year 2021 A.D. Not Paul and Timothy and John, but Yuns and myself. Remember from where you have fallen. What are those core beliefs that shaped those people at Ephesus as followers of Christ? What are the core beliefs that shaped this church? Surely this church is founded upon a foundation that is none other than the person of Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 11, he says, For no man, listen, no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The designer of the church at Ephesus and the, the designer of this church's foundation is the same. It is Jesus. 
It is to be built upon by the preaching of the gospel message. And much of what we hear today, not all, but much of what we hear today is far removed from the good news of Jesus Christ. We hear about self-worth, self-reliance, and, and, manage, and self-management skills. That, my friends, is not the gospel. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it's not the gospel. The gospel is the good news. It is called the gospel of God in Romans 1.1. It is called the gospel of Jesus Christ in Mark 1.1. It is called the gospel of the grace of God in Acts 20.24. It's called the gospel of peace in Ephesians 6.15. It's called the, the gospel of your salvation in Ephesians 1.13. It's called the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God in 2 Corinthians 4.4. It's the good news of Jesus. It is in Christ that our values and our beliefs are determined. It is in Christ that our worship is to be ordered. It is in Christ that our church government is to be based. It is in Christ that we are to develop our goals, our values, vision, mission, and purpose. My vision for this church and your vision for this church is not determined by your bylaws and constitution. It's determined by Jesus Christ and the word that he gives us. This is where the vision is at. This is where our values are at. This is where our purpose is at. This is what our mission ought to be. Right here. Not that we have some paper that some finite mind put together, but right here. The infallible and errant word of God. This is where we stand. And yes, the culture may not accept it, but I'm telling you folks, It'll be here when the next culture comes and goes. If we don't want our church to be a fallen church, then we must, we must keep near and dear to that which brought us here. That word. Point four. Verse five. He says, repent or else I will remove your lampstand. One of the most needed and possibly one of the most unheeded messages today is the one that promotes the need to repent. When you have an unrepentant church, when you have an unrepentant church, you have an unregenerate church. When you have an unregenerate church, the people you put in leadership positions are unregenerate. You're giving them God's money to do a God thing work, but you're using an unregenerate person to do it. When you put them in a deacon position or a pastor position, if they're, if they're an unrepentant, they're, un, they're, they're, not, they're not generated in life. They have no life of Christ in them. The church needs to be a repentant church. And it's not the unbeliever that is repentant. Unbelievers do not just become repentant people. The word repentance means to bring yourself to God and agree with God that what you are doing is wrong. That lost person doesn't think like that. The lost person can care less about disobeying God 
They're zipping along 180 miles an hour, not even worried about what God thinks about it. But it is the person who's in church who the Holy Spirit of God has regenerated that person's heart, that he has pricked the heart to say that the Word of God is true, that Jesus is real, and I need Jesus in my life. That only comes by the work of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit does that in your life, read Acts 13, 48. All that, listen, all that God had ordained into, into eternal life, believed. Listen, when the Holy Spirit works in your life and it regenerates your, your heart. That doesn't come from me. That comes from God. And when that person says, Jesus, I need you in my life, that person then re- repents of his or her sin. You know, when people say, we need, we need to go out, you know, we need to save more souls. Folks, I can't save anybody. Neither can you. Would you like to see our converts? It would be a scary thing. The only kind of convert we're interested in is the one that God makes. Yes, we need to share the good news. We need to share the gospel of Jesus with people. Absolutely. God didn't put a big X on somebody's head and say, this one is and this one isn't. He says, go and preach the gospel to who? Everybody. Everybody. Let the Holy Spirit work where the Holy Spirit will work. But you and I have a job of doing what? Sharing the gospel so the, the Holy Spirit, God, can regenerate that person. That person who's regenerated then does what? They repent of their sins. Repentance and faith are like hand in hand. When it, a repentant person is a person of faith. A person of faith is a repentant person. When we do not accept repentance as a part of the mystery and purpose of this church... God says, repent or else I'm going to do what? I'm going to remove your church. I'll take it out. I brought you in. I'll take you out. And I'm sure you've heard of churches that once were and they are no more. It is the repentant church that is eager to promote the gospel. It is the repentant church that promotes biblical values. It is the repentant church that doesn't look back but presses on. How is it possible to preach Christ but not preach repentance? When Jesus began his earthly ministry, he did so with these words, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 3, 17. In, in Mark's gospel, 115, says, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's what Jesus preached. It ought to be what we're thinking about also. My friends, be assured of this. When the Holy Spirit moves and regenerates a person's heart, at that very moment, a sense of godly sorrow and a repentant spirit floods a person's soul. And it is an abs- absolute must that that person's heart will be broken by the fact that they are a sinful creature. Just like Isaiah standing before God and he sees God high and lifted up and a train of his robe flooding the temple. And what does Isaiah do? He says, man, I'm going to fill out a church membership card. No, he don't do that. I need a box of envelopes to send my tithe. And no. He says, oh, woe is me. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live amongst a people of unclean lips. I'm ruined. That is what we need in church. 
That's the fire of revival. That's the essence of renewal. That's the hope that we have, that when the gospel is preached and people will start coming forward because they are hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. Point five, verse seven. The Lord says to John, to him who overcomes, to the apostle John, it is one who overcomes it is the one who overcomes who is the Christian. Are you, are you an overcomer? If you, if you really are a Christian, you cannot help but be an overcomer. In John chapter 2 and verse 20, this is what the apostle writes. But you have an anointing. Listen to that. You have an anointing from the Holy One. You know, we, we pray for an anointing, don't we? Man, I, I pray for an anointing. But you know, you're already anointed. You are so anointed. Let me tell you something. No matter what this world does to you, no matter what, the, no matter what anybody does to you, they can shred us into zillions of little pieces. But they cannot destroy what belongs to Jesus. You are an overcomer. It is Christ the Holy One. It is Christ the Anointed One who anoints the believer. And they, we are the Anointed Ones. You and I are the Anointed Ones. David cries out. David cries out when he rejoices over the fact that, that God has anointed him. He says, I have been what? Anointed with fresh oil. It's like God has just dumped a whole 55-gallon drum of anointing oil all over you. So David is saying, not just a little dabble, do you? But a whole bucket load of it. From the top of your head to the very soles of your foot. I've been anointed, you've been anointed with God's fresh oil. John 2.27 reads, the anointing you received from him abides in you. Listen, as Christians, we are eternally safe and secure in Christ. Man, I hope you believe that. No matter what happens, if you think you're in good hands with some things, when, when the Lord has you, he's not just got you like this, he's got you like this. Not just open, open so you can jump out. Because you can jump out. There's no jumping out when he got you like this. He got you in the palm of his hands. He says, nobody, nobody can take you from me. We are secure in Christ. And we shall never be separated from him. The very fact of this truth makes us to be overcomers. I want to close with this last verse verses in, in Romans chapter 8 Paul writing to the church at Rome he closed out that 8th that chapter is a fantastic chapter but he says this beginning in verse 37 he says but in all things but in all things we overwhelmingly 
conquer. It makes you feel like an overcomer, doesn't it? We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Here's what we need to do. We need to start today. Shove aside everything that stands in the way of Jesus having supremacy. Paul, writing to the church of Colossians, says that in all things, that in all things, that he might have the preeminence. Set aside everything, absolutely everything. This building, your ministry, whatever committees you're on, everything. Pastor search, deacons, music, set it all aside. Start at the beginning, the beginning point. Start there. Jesus Christ, and he says, not just, oh, yeah, I believe, you say you believe in Jesus, get into his book. Because Jesus says, you love me, you will keep my what? Keep my word. Let's start there today. 